Hello, I'm William Bell with Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust. Coming up next is the Living Body Broadcast. Stay tuned. Michael Sullivan is a graduate of Calvary Chapel Bible College. He has also majored in theology at the Master's College for two years. Mike is a co-author of a popular full preterist book, House Divided, Bridging the Gap in Reformed Eschatology, a preterist response to When Shall These Things Be? He has written several articles for preterist periodicals and websites. He is the owner of two preterist websites, www.treeoflifeministries.info, and www.fullpreterism.com. Mike has been a full preterist for 21 years. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust, presents to you the Living Body Broadcast with Michael Sullivan. (laughs) Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Body Show. And uh, as you know, we've been having a series of uh, shows dedicated to what theologians have called the big three. That is, there are three passages in which Jesus, uh, whether it depends on what side of the debate you're on, uh, whether Jesus did or did not promise that his return would take place within the lifetime of his first century disciples and in their this generation, We have covered the first two, Matthew 10, verses 22 and 23. We have covered Matthew 16, 27, and 28 very thoroughly, given a positive exegesis of it, and also spent a little time refuting um, a former full preterist, uh, who William, I think, has rightly described as uh, thinking he's all that and a bag of chips. And so we went through his little article on Matthew 16, 27, 28, and demonstrated how he believes that that was fulfilled in the Ascension. And uh, we, of course, went to Daniel 7 to show that's not the case. We went to, uh, we just showed from Matthew 16, just the immediate context, that was not the case. And William did a great job uh, going into Revelation 5, which is where Sam ends up going in his article, uh, showing how... You know, that's not just the already, but it's the not yet. It's the the coming of the Lord in A.D. 66 to A.D. 70 that's in view, not A.D. 30. And so now we find ourselves in the third uh, big text here, and that's Matthew 24, verse 34, where Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. He doesn't say some of these things. But he says all of these things. So everything preceding verse 34, Jesus said, would be fulfilled in his, this generation. Now, we could spend a lot of time on what this generation is, and we're eventually going to get there. But it's obviously going to be helpful to the listener to understand how a full preterist would see how all these things were fulfilled. Uh, All the signs and the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, uh, the decreation language and so forth in that first century generation and how the New Testament confirms that. Uh, 
So that's basically what William and I are going to do. First, I just want to give some preliminary thoughts. The importance of Matthew 24 and 25 is vital. Uh, D.A. Carson says that the discourse itself is undoubtedly a source for the Thessalonian epistles. And he cites Waterman, and that's an excellent article, The Sources of Paul's Teaching on the Second Coming of Christ in First and Second Thessalonians. Waterman actually makes about 22, par- 22 or 24 parallels between the Olivet Discourse and First and Second Thessalonians, and he shows without a shadow of doubt that Paul was following the Olivet Discourse in his eschatology in First and Second Thessalonians. Carson also um, references France and Winham uh, on this. He also references the Book of Revelation with G.K. Beale. Um, you know, and that, that's very similar. We, we've discussed this before that you know uh, Gary Demar, who's a partial predator, said, "Well, the Book of Revelation is simply John's version of the Olivet Discourse." Well, we don't disagree with that, and we don't disagree with the scholars that say that. But Carson concludes, he says, We may say that Jesus himself sets the pattern for the church's eschatology. So Carson is admitting that, hey, whatever your understanding is of the Olivet Discourse is is going to dictate what the rest of the New Testament church's eschatology is. That's very key. Even one of our outstanding opponents, Mr. Thomas Ice, who's a dispensationalist, says this. He says, this discourse is so significant that the way a person interprets it will impact his understanding of the rest of the prophecy passages in the Bible. So he's including your Old Testament and your New Testament. So whatever your interpretation of the Olivet Discourse is, it's going to impact impact how you view prophecy in the Old and New Testament. We couldn't agree more. He goes on, of course, to say, well, you know, uh, the full preterist, his whole argument, stand or fall in the Olivet Discourse. Well, if that's the case, uh, the opposite is true uh, for the dispensationalist. If his uh, understanding of the Olivet Discourse is faulty, then his understanding of the rest of the New Testament and Bible prophecy in general is faulty. We agree with that. Uh, William, I guess the best place to start is uh, we, you know, we've kind of outlined how important it is that the Olivet Discourse, as it relates to the rest of the New Testament. But once we get into this question of the disciples, uh, this is where futurists really take um, exception and they try and create a problem that's not there, uh, to then to insert a a subject matter uh, that's simply not in the rest of the uh, text. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24, and then we'll, we'll address this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Let's stop right there. You know, William, when you're uh, shooting a bow and arrow, and you're shooting an arrow, if you're off on your aim just maybe a quarter of an inch 
and you let that arrow go, by the time the arrow reaches the target, it's like four, five, sometimes ten feet away from the target, kind of depending on how far you're shooting it. And I think this is – right here we have a, a fundamental problem with futurism in that they simply assume that the disciples didn't know what they were talking about. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, when you know you approached Matthew 24 and um, the context, as you've just read, is focused on the fall of the temple, you know, every stone of the temple being thrown down, and then you have these questions that follow as you are setting up the um, uh, objections and the attempts at others to create something from this context, which is not here, um, it becomes one of the, you know, one of the real interesting uh, problems uh, to try and segment and separate, dissect each of these um, uh, questions in the, you know, in the comments um, that Jesus made into three or two separate events that are widely divided in terms of time, et cetera. Uh, you know, he's very clearly stating here, Tell us when will these things be, which refers back to the temple. And there's not as, you know, not many people that I know of who will um, assign those words to anything other than the destruction of the temple, which, by the way, would be connecting what has been stated in the previous chapter, chapter 23, again, which is something that everyone pretty much agrees on. There's almost universal agreement on that. And so we have therefore at least a part of the context of chapter 23 already admitted in chapter 24 but then he says and what will be the sign of your coming or your parousia uh, parousia as some pronounce it i'm not quite sure which is correct and then he says and of the end or the completion of the age so this is you know it's one subject it's one, it's one question just kind of broken down into three parts but it all refers to the same or the one in the same in time or eschatological event, and that's what Jesus describes in the coming verses, which you know I'm sure we're going to talk about. So uh, to have some uh, start this chapter by uh, creating uh, another event that's separated in time really becomes a you know a unique process within itself, and it's the source, as you were stating with all of the you know scholarly comments on uh, the chapter before. Uh, it becomes the source of where this dividing line parts and what creates all of the tension that we have in the eschatological studies and teachings of today. Amen. Well, let me, uh, let's focus on a few theologians. Uh, we want to focus on Gentry, Kenneth Gentry, who's a mm -hmm. post-millennial partial preterist. We want to focus maybe on Thomas Ice and perhaps uh, pastor, my former pastor, uh, John MacArthur. Gentry, I don't know if you've read him much on this, uh, William, but he is so confused on, on what the end of the age is here. Uh, out of one side of his mouth, he's, he says it's the Old Covenant age, uh, kind of, sort of. And then uh, let me read what, you, what he has to say. In debating Thomas Ice in their book, uh, The Tribulation, Past or Future, uh, Gentry says this. 
Christ's teaching here is extremely important to redemptive history. He is responding to the question of his disciples regarding when the end of the age, that is Greek aeon, will occur, Matthew 24.3. In essence, his full answer is when the Romans lay waste the temple. Okay, so if you read that comment, well, the end of the age, according to uh, Gentry, is when the Romans lay waste the temple. Well, we've got no problem with that. And he also goes on, he says, well, the change of the age is finalized and sealed at the, at the destruction of Jerusalem. Allusions to AD 70, transition abound. As surely I say to you, there are some staying here. And he, he mentions some text. So, okay, okay, the change of the age, Matthew 24, 3, in, in the context of his discussion here, uh, he's referring it to AD 70. But... He goes on to then agree with his debate opponent, a dispensationalist Thomas Ice, that the disciples were confused about this. And he says this, William, he says, In these questions we sense once again the bewilderment among the disciples at Jesus' teaching, a bewilderment such as is seen elsewhere in Matthew, as in their confusion about the leaven of the Pharisees, Christ's death, the purpose of the transfiguration, Christ's interest in children, the nature of the kingdom services. Quite clearly, Christ divides their question into two episodes. In his answer, first, he speaks about the coming great tribulation resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 34, which is in this generation. And secondly... His distant future second coming at the end of history, which is after a long time. Okay, so what Gentry is doing here is what most do, William, and that is uh, – and his debate opponent, Thomas Ice, does the same thing. He, uh, he simply assumes that the disciples were confused in associating the coming of the Son of Man and the temple's destruction with the end of the age. He's confused on identifying what the end of the age is because you read in one in one page, he, he seems to refer it to the end of the Old Covenant age. But, William, this is what I found interesting, and I did an article on this. Every example where he shows that the disciples were confused in Matthew's gospel, guess what? In those passages, it is clearly stated either by Matthew as the narrator or Jesus states clearly that they were confused, and he corrects their confusion. So in essence, William, Gentry proves too much when he brings up these examples because once we approach Matthew 24, 3, we don't have Jesus, we don't have Matthew telling us that the disciples are confused. So Gentry digs his own grave here by bringing up these examples, and I surely, most assuredly, appreciate him doing that. And if you want to go on my website and read my article uh, regarding that, I, I, I go through every example he does and show that. Uh, you're more than welcome to. Um, let me scroll down here. Thomas Ice pretty much says the same thing. He says, that is, the disciples took the destruction of Jerusalem to be completely eschatological. The questioners took for granted that all three things went together, destruction of the temple, the advent of the Son of Man, and the end of the current age. Uh, he says, while the disciples merged these three events into a single time period, 
Christ did not. Well, that's just him assuming that. That's that you can't get that from the text. In fact, he says Matthew and Mark do not deal with the destruction of Jerusalem in their accounts of the Olivet Discourse. And oop, are you there? William. Uh oh. I think William uh, cut himself off on accident. Hopefully he'll Hello. Hopefully he'll uh join us. <laughs> uh but let's go on here. So it, it's interesting that now some uh dispensationalists will say will even go as far as to say that Matthew and Mark don't even deal with the destruction of Jerusalem at all. That's just rather incredible. John MacArthur says whether they fully realized it or not, the disciples were actually raising multiple questions. Well, I'm, I'm glad that MacArthur knows exactly what the disciples were thinking. Uh, then he goes on and he says in the Olivet Discourse itself, he makes no clear reference to the events of AD 70. What? Um, he says, of course, verse 1 is, but he says uh, later on, he says in the Olivet Discourse itself, he makes no clear reference to AD 70. He says, virtually ignoring their initial question, he said nothing whatsoever about when the destruction of Jerusalem would occur. That is because those events were not really germane, that is important, to the end of the age. So the problem we have here is that these guys simply assume that the end of the age is the end of the Christian age or the end of time. And they don't understand that the current age that they were referring to, when I quoted uh, Ice back there, the current age was not the Christian age in the Olivet Discourse. The current age, Christ hadn't died and begun the New Covenant uh, age, yet the current age was the Old Covenant age. And we saw that again in Matthew 13. I don't know if you remember our study there where he says the end of this age. And and we cited many partial predators to believe that that is correctly the Old Covenant age, and the age to come would be the New Covenant age. So what we have to ask a fundamental hermeneutical question. In the immediate context, what age, what end of the age would be associated with the temple's destruction? Well, it wouldn't be the New Covenant age. It would be the Old Covenant Age. When the temple would fall, the Old Covenant Age would completely come to an end. Remember Hebrews 8.13. That which is vanishing or waxing old or, or disappearing, it was about to vanish, uh, the book of Hebrews says. What? The Old Covenant was about to vanish. So, and you can go to, uh, I believe, Second Corinthians 3 and 4 to see the passing of the Old Covenant system as well. So, you know, we're, we're kind of on the wrong path when we're looking at gentry and we're looking at the dispensationalists because they're trying to bring in confusion where there is no confusion. Here's another point. If you go to Matthew 13... And I think it's around verses 50 to 52. Jesus clearly asked the disciples if they understood his teaching about the end of the age and the harvest and, and the reaping and so forth, the judgment. And guess what they said? They said, yes, Lord, we understand. 
Well, it's kind of interesting that Gentry wants to cite all these passages that actually prove our point, where the disciples were confused, and Jesus or Matthew tells us that they were confused. But Gentry, for some reason, wants to be intellectually dishonest and not address a passage where the disciples are clearly asked if they understand Jesus' teaching about what? The end of the age. And they say yes. It's a clear statement that yes, they understood Jesus' teaching about the end of the age. Uh, I find it so interesting that so many just decide they want to pass that passage by. Getting closer to the truth, Gary DeMar says this. So the disciples' question involves three interrelated contemporary events. First, the time of the temple's destruction. Two, the sign that will signal Jesus' coming related to the destruction of the temple. And three, the sign they should look for telling them that the end of the age has come. These questions are related to the destruction of the temple and the end of the old covenant redemptive system and nothing else. William, are you there? No, I thought I heard him. Uh, so Gary DeMar, a partial preterist, he's orthodox, he's reformed. He's telling us that the Olivet Discourse has got no, it has nothing to do with the end of the Christian age. It has everything to do with the end of the Old Covenant age, and it has nothing to do with anything else, he says. Nothing else. So Gary DeMar would reject Gentry's view that the disciples were confused. And he is much clearer and contextual in identifying that the end of the age here is the end of the Old Covenant age, not the end of time, not the end of history, not the end of planet Earth. Are you there, William? I am here. Okay, all right. You're back with us. Yes. Uh, have you heard me thus far? Or? I uh, We got cut off there a minute, and okay. uh, so I'll just kind of catch back up. I was trying to get back in. Okay, well, no problem. I, I just was uh, covering... You know how Gentry covered some of those passages um, where the disciples were confused, but he didn't go to a very important text, which is in Matthew 13. I think it's at about verses 50 to 52, where Jesus asked the disciples, he says, did you understand my teaching? And in context, it's the it's his teaching about the end of the age, you know, the parable of the wheat and the right. tares. Correct. And, and the disciples say, yes, Lord. So here we have a clear uh, statement, a clear question by Jesus, and a clear answer by the disciples that, yes, they understood Jesus' teaching about the end of the age. But once we, once we get to Matthew 24, no one and their grandma, William, wants to bring that passage up because they all want the disciples to be confused so that they can teach that the Olivet Discourse is somehow and in some way discussing the end of the Christian age. Yes, that's a very uh, excellent point, uh, Michael, especially with the um, uh, confirmation that Jesus received from the disciples when he asked them directly, as you uh, pointed out, you know, did they understand? And, you know, this followed the fact that they had come to him and asked him when they first heard the parable of what the actual parable meant. And so they asked him to explain, this is in Matthew 13 and verse 36, uh, they went to him and asked him, saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So that's precisely what Jesus did. 
he took the time to um, to go and you know cover that with them, uh, explain it to them to make sure that they understood. And uh, as you say, when he asked them, you know, whether or not they did understand, they agreed that they did understand. So, you know, if they understood what he spoke about concerning the end of the age, if they understood the tears of the field, et cetera, and um, his teaching on on his return and the coming of the kingdom, uh, the correlation of that with 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 Daniel, which is um, what it's all about, then uh, no one has any authority or right to claim that he did not know or they did not know what is meant by the end of the age. So they were not confused about that. They had a clear understanding. They stated that they did, uh, and this was after they had asked Jesus for an explanation. Now, you know, a good teacher will always follow up with his students and ask, you know, if the message that has been communicated, if they are in that kind of situation, and especially when somebody asks you to explain, they'll follow up and, you know, verify that the information given would be understood, and that's precisely what he did. And I think that that bears a lot of weight. And uh, since there is an absence of that in either of the accounts, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, uh, we should be pretty confident that they did quite well understand what Jesus talked about. Yeah, and then uh, while you were gone, I, I the third person I quoted was Gary DeMar, who's a partial preterist, and I pointed out how it is orthodox, it is reformed, uh, it is scholarly to say this. And he, he writes, These questions are related to the destruction of the temple and the end of the old covenant redemptive system and nothing else. And nothing else, he says. So Damar would reject Gentry's view the disciples were confused. He would reject uh, his confusion over what the end of the age is. He clearly says it's the end of the Old Covenant age. And Damar would also reject MacArthur and the other views that say AD 70 was only a preview or a type of another judgment to come. And I know uh, Don Preston and yourself have kind of gone hard uh, after Joel McDermott on this issue because, you know, when he's caught in a sticky situation, he wants to say, like, Second Peter 3 is eighty seventy, but its ultimate fulfillment is something future. And he does that uh, with some pa- key passages in uh, Revelation 20 as well. Uh, but, William, when they get into the Olivet Discourse and they're and they're debating dispensationalists, uh, they would come kind of come alongside here and, and, well, they just clearly state that the Olive Discourse is uh, it's, it's about nothing else other than the Old Covenant redemptive system, and they refute the dispensationalist thinking that there is a – that 8070 was just a type of another fulfillment. But then when they debate us, uh, boy, they give those 8070 fulfillments uh, multiple – fulfillments don't they (laughs) oh yes you know michael that is one of the most uh just you know amazing things that i see occurring with um the uh, partial preterists and those who have taken very clear positions on the fulfillment of these passages when they are speaking with dispensationalists uh of course you know we know there's some contradictions with the the things that ken gentry uh did in the debate with with uh, tommy ice but at the same time when they're 
you know, as you say, uh, defending partial preterism against dispensationalism, they're very clear that these things don't have a dual fulfillment, and they certainly don't have multiple fulfillments. But when they are talking to us uh, in looking at everything being fulfilled, um, then they find some fulfillments that they couldn't find in the discussions with the uh, dispensationalists. So this becomes a very remarkable hermeneutic uh, that they um, uh, you know, espouse when they are speaking with those of us who uh, are full preterists and uh, who hold to covenant eschatology. And that is the only way that they can respond in a way that appears to make them sound um, you know, intelligent or have some plausibility in their arguments is to opt for the dual fulfillment uh, role. And then you know, that opens the door. Once you open the door to a dual fulfillment, where does it ever stop? How can it stop? And whose hermeneutic determines whether it stops? So, you know, it's just an endless, uh, it's a revolving door that once they get into it, um, it has no end. And, you know, they'll just keep going and going and going. And once they define the hermeneutic that determines how many times you can have a dual fulfillment, uh, I, I would suppose that that same hermeneutic would do away with the one that they claim they have. So uh, I guess we're yet to see what that hermeneutic is uh, that determines, um, you know, dual fulfillments. But that is a major, major problem and uh, a very sticky issue for uh, the partial preterist view that, you know, opts for double fulfillments. Yeah, and uh, I I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but um, you know Matthew twenty four verse thirty five, mm-hmm. uh, where Jesus says, "Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away." Now Gary Demar and Joel McDermott will say, "Well, this is the temple. The heaven and earth is the temple," and they would say this is parallel to Second Peter three, and the elements there are the temple are the old covenant system and the temple structure. Mm-hmm. Well, the question is, though, and I asked this on American Vision website. Of course, I eventually got kicked off because I was pressing the inconsistencies of their hermeneutic probably more than anyone on there. Um, but uh, I said, well, wait a second, Joel McDermott. When you go to Second Peter 3, you give this a this, – this decreation – and the decreation in Revelation 21.1, you say this had a fulfillment in 8070, but it awaits an ultimate fulfillment at the end of time. But you say that the heaven and earth in Matthew 24.35 can't have multiple fulfillments. And yet you say Matthew 24.35 is the same decreation as Second Peter 3. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't have that. You can't have it. Both ways, you can't say they're the same event, and then say Second Peter three has multiple fulfillments, but Matthew twenty four thirty five doesn't. And you know we'll eventually get to Matthew twenty four thirty five and kind of go over how the Jews understood heaven and earth and the temple. But I just wanted to throw that out there in in the scope of uh, you know addressing this uh, multiple fulfillments of the Olivet discourse. Let's let's go on here because. <clears throat> You know, many people listening to us, uh, you know, maybe for the first time, William, they've heard all these TV preachers, they've read some of these prophecy experts, they've walked into your contemporary Christian quote-unquote bookstore, and they're reading these guys, and 
listening to these guys. And when it comes to the signs that we're going to get into, William, they say, well, you know, we're seeing these signs right before our eyes. Uh, the newspapers are, are showing us every day that these signs are being fulfilled and that therefore Christ's coming it could happen any day now. And, you know, of course, there's uh, they even have some problems with imminence versus some of the other things they say. But uh, there's this uh, newspaper eschatology, so to speak, that, that takes place. And so what we're going to do, folks, is we're just going to go through some of these signs. Some of them are general signs that Jesus actually says are not signs of his imminent return. And yet you'll hear these quote-unquote prophecy experts go to these signs and say, yeah, see, uh, this was fulfilled kind of, sort of, in Israel, and so Christ is coming soon. And it's in, direct, it's in direct opposition to what Jesus actually says. But Jesus gives general signs, and then he gives two very specific signs of his imminent return. So let's go ahead and uh, address, address some of these. In verse 4, Jesus says this, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Okay, so let's stop there. The first one, false messiahs or prophets. Uh, William, were there false messiahs and false prophets that arose before or within Jesus' quote-unquote this generation? Well, that is certainly documented in the New Testament. It's also documented in extra-biblical sources. Mm. Uh, we can see uh, very early on in the book of Acts where there were those who started to rise up and draw away uh, disciples after them, making themselves out to be uh, the Christ or some uh, some great one. And um, these were some of the things that, um, as you say, you know, Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter um, uh, 24, but the book of Acts records them. So you have, you know, some documentation right within the um, the New Testament to show that these men did one of them that um, is, you know, very um, uh, uh, notable is the claim of Simon the sorcerer in uh, Acts, eight. Acts chapter 8. You also have in Acts chapter 5, and this is documented also in, in Josephus as well, but mm -hmm. in Acts chapter 5, starting in um, verse 35, when they are you know, before Gamaliel and um, uh, the council, along with the apostles, you know, he, he says this, he says, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him was were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who uh, obeyed him were dispersed. And so here are two examples, along with the one in Acts chapter 8. And, of course, you know, the epistles re all record that there were, you know, false teachers, Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, there were false teachers among the um, uh, people, uh, even as there should be false teachers among you. And uh, throughout the the New Testament, you know, Second Timothy four and um, one through five, et cetera, they document very well that there would be false teachers during that first century generation. And so Jesus's words um, come to pass literally and have inspired documentation. 
And then on top of that, as I said, we have some historical documentation uh, that simply corroborates the things that Jesus stated. So we don't have to you know, go to a new generation to find these things. We can stay right within the first century generation. It's well documented. And those who comment on Matthew 24 always bring up these events as documentation of the false prophets that would arise prior to the fulfillment of those things. Mm. And you mentioned, uh, you know, secular sources, uh, secondary historical sources outside of Scripture. And, of course, Josephus would be perfect. He says, of so great a multitude, not one escaped. The destruction was caused by a false prophet who had on that day proclaimed to those remaining in the city that God commanded them to go up to the temple there to receive the signs of their deliverance. There were at that time many prophets suborned by the tyrants to delude the people by bidding them to wait for help from God in order that there might be less desertion and that those who were above fear and control might be encouraged by hope. Under calamities, Man readily yields to persuasion, but when the deceiver pictures to him deliverance from pressing evils, then the sufferer who is wholly influenced by hope. Thus it was that the impostors and pretender, pretended messengers of heaven at that time beguiled the wretched people. And of course he's talking about AD 70. So, uh, you know, William's done a good job. Uh, I was looking at the text. He's already gone to the New Testament text. Uh, there's historical evidence for this. Uh, you know, so it, it's why, if there's fulfillment in Scripture and we have the historical evidence, why do we want to reject that and say, at the very least, say, oh, well, there, you give some lip service and say, yeah, well, that was one fulfillment, but there's going to be another fulfillment. Well, the text doesn't say that. Uh, why add to scripture you know don't go beyond what is written folks uh, let's just uh, stick with scripture uh, Jesus also mentions another sign William he, he talks about wars and rumors of wars uh, let me go ahead and read that uh, let's see here he says in verse 6 uh, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Well, what end is he talking about? In context, the only end that's been brought up is the end of the age. So Jesus is talking about, uh, in the context of eight events leading up to AD 70, of an end. Um, and he's talking about there would be wars and rumors of wars. And William, is, is Jesus talking about the arms race? Is he talking about nuclear de developments that's taking place in the Middle East here? Well, that, that's a, you know, you mentioned newspaper exegesis a moment ago, and uh, that's a term that, that um, appropriately describes much of what is um, passed on as Bible prophecy today. In other words, you know, it just depends on what the newspapers say and what the reporters say um, in the news uh, regarding these events. But, you know, what is very clear is the fact that Jesus is describing, as you say, a time uh, called the time of the end. Um, there was 
but one time of the end, and particularly, which we'll get to somewhat later in the in the text, but we have mentioned in the previous passages when we were uh, discussing Matthew 16, 27 and 28, and um, Matthew 13, when we made references back to Daniel, that this was a time that would be within uh, the nation of Israel, the covenant nation of Israel, and that is another big uh, point that needs to be covered or it needs to be at least mentioned, because we're not just talking about uh, what is today called the state of Israel, this, this modern state of Israel, which just came into being back in 1948. What we're talking about is the covenant people of God that uh, started with Moses, who are, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 32, are at their terminal point in Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus talks about that. The apostles talk about it. The epistles describe it. This is the end that they are referencing. This is the time of which there would be no other to. Hey, William. Uh, yes. William. Yeah. Uh, you're breaking up. You're breaking up just a little bit. I'm not sure if it's something you can fix real quick. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. I'm 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 on a landline this time. You know, I just didn't want to trust oh, okay. Skype anymore. So. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what's causing. Um, that's okay. I can hear you now pretty well. So. Okay. So at any rate, you know that's uh, you know basically what I wanted to say. Um, so I hope that you know much of that um, was at least clear enough for others to uh, to grasp. Absolutely. And you know John L. Bray in his book uh, Matthew 24 Fulfilled does a good job of doing some historical. Work here. He says in AD 40, there was a disturbance in Mesopotamia, or, uh, yeah, Mesopotamia, which Josephus says caused the deaths of more than 50,000 people. In AD 49, a tumult at Jerusalem at the time of the Passover resulted in 10,000 to 20,000 deaths. At Caesarea, contentions between Jew, Jewish people and other inhabitants resulted in over 20,000 Jews being killed. As Jews moved elsewhere, over 20,000 were destroyed by Syrians. Uh, at another place, over 13,000 Jews were killed. Thousands were killed in other places. At the And at Alexandria, 50,000 were killed. At Damascus, 10,000 were killed in an hour's time. He goes on, the annals of Tatius covering the period from A.D. 14 to the death of Nero in A.D. 68, describes the tumult of the period with phrases such as disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, the war of Britain, and the war in Armenia. Wars were fought from one end of the empire to the other. With this description, we can see further fulfillment for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So, you know, Jesus is not discussing uh, modern-day Israel and the nations of the globe. He's discussing the nations that they knew of, the known world that they knew of. And, uh, you know, he's not talking about Russia. He's not talking about China, Iraq, uh, and what's going on today. So um, I know that's for some that's not that exciting, um, you know. For some, William, this is—I uh, don't want to say what Christianity is all about. That might be too stretching it too far. But 
for some, I mean, this is really their hope. I mean, I know that you and Don did a program where you were uh, going through Thomas Ice's book, you know, The End Times Controversy, and they were just so distraught over the fact that if full preterism is true, then they won't live to see all these uh, you know, horrible, uh, you know, the tri tribulation and all this death and stuff. And uh, for some people, this is uh, this is really big stuff. And and if you take that away, they just uh, they almost seem to fall apart. But you know, we're supposed to have our hope in Christ in things which cannot be seen. Well, that's true. You know, the documentation that you gave from John Bray's book is um, just really, really powerful. You know, and it's it's so well known. As, you know, any uh, especially you know scholars are quite familiar with that, and and those who are well read in scriptures and in that first century history know this to be a fact. So it's not something that a person has to you know do and uh, just um, huge amount of digging and scraping around to find. This is you know pretty common knowledge for those who are familiar with prophetic teachings and eschatological teachings, and especially the things that surrounded the destruction of Jerusalem as recorded in, you know, Josephus and other first century historians. So, you know, the documentation is there. The evidence is there. And uh, I would say that some of the news media who report on uh, these events that are happening around the world would probably even be aware of the kind of documentation that comes out of the first century, but and it's we can't fault them with, uh, you know, with reporting the news. The problem becomes when we have these quote prophetic teachers uh, who start to interpret the news as the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they have you know prophecy news updates, et cetera, and the moment you know a bomb is dropped somewhere or you know some root civil uh, outbreak takes place. Um, anything that happens, you know, within Israel, uh, you know, oh. particularly, uh, it becomes the center of attention, and it becomes an eschatological sign. So, um, yeah. this is something that people need to be, you know, aware of, and and um, to help them to understand how those things are totally unrelated to the scriptures in terms of time of fulfillment. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned because it was right on the tip of my tongue. I, of course, uh, you know, attended Chuck Smith's uh, church, uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, in Southern California and ended up going to Calvary Chapel Bible College and graduating. But when I was there, you know, many people would ask me, William and, and others, what is the success of, of Calvary Chapel? Why are they so successful? Why is Chuck Smith so so successful? Well, there was a few reasons. One, he let Letting anybody in the church, you know, there was no dress requirement, and so that brought in a lot of people, and I, I didn't see any problem with that. Uh, there was a contemporary worship. That was a part of the growth. But, William, I would have to say one of the main reasons that church exploded growth-wise was what you called the prophecy updates. Every New Year's, Chuck Smith, I mean the place would be packed, packed. Uh, the overflow room would be packed, people on the radio, TV, I mean, would all tune in to listen to Chuck Smith's prophecy update. And virtually every time, William, he would read one verse out of Matthew 24 and go right into modern-day events with Israel and talk about how the priests are, uh, or they're, they're making the priests 
uh, garments and they're anticipating the rebuilding of a temple and I, it's like <laughs> and everybody was just mesmerized by this they wouldn't look at the actual text because they just trusted the guy that he knew what he was talking about and i was right there with them i mean i was you know doing the same thing but it was interesting after graduating bible college and then going back to the church there and you know being taught expositionary expositional preaching uh expository preaching excuse me and noticing that the guy just was not following any of the rules of hermeneutics and exposition that i was taught and that's when a lot of red flags started coming up but you know we find this a lot in a lot of the cults william Jehovah De- Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they're constantly handing out these flyers that the end is near. Uh, you see it with the uh, Seventh Day Adventists; uh, they do the same thing. Um, you know, Mormons do it. Um, it seems to be if you want to grow a cult or you want to grow a church, well, you just start preaching and teaching newspaper eschatology. That's just uh, you know par for the course if you want to really. Get in on growing your church, and unfortunately, um, hermeneutics goes out the window to do so. Um, there are other signs, <clears throat> other general signs. Uh, let's see here, William. He talks about uh, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are the beginning of birth pains. Uh, Famines. Again, the Bible and history record famine and pestilence during the last days. And that is AD 30 to AD 70, the last days of the Old Covenant Age. Yeah, speaking of of famines, Michael, you know, you have the text in Acts chapter 11 uh, and verse 28 that is a a definite fulfillment of uh, the prophecies related to famine. Of course, you know, this was a. a major one that occurred in um, Judea, but notice in in verse 28, uh, it says that in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is verse 27 of Acts 11, and then the next verse. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which Mm. also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So not only do these prophets foretell that the event would take place. You know, Jesus has already talked about it, but they also tell us the historical time frame. They date the famine and say that it took place in the days of Claudius Caesar. So, uh, and as a result of that, the response to the uh, famine was that uh, these churches who were outside of Jerusalem started to uh, take up collections, and take them to the poor saints in Jerusalem. It says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we've got the uh, the players who were involved, you know, the church at, um, at Antioch, the prophets, etc. We've got uh, the messengers, Paul, uh, Barnabas and Saul. We've got those who received from their hands, and... Um, so this is this is documented uh, evidence right within the scriptures that these famines took place, and you mentioned the earthquakes as well. Well, um, you, you know, if you do the, uh, I guess you call it the seismograph. I think that's what it's called. But if you if you do go and to this um, uh, where they do these uh, geo studies about the Earth, 
Palestine and, and that area in Asia Minor, et cetera, all of that area is centered on major geological faults. So it is common for earthquakes to occur within that area. And, of course, they've got documented earthquakes that happen during that time. As a matter of fact, it's, you know, I think in Philip Schaff's history, um, one of the areas that he documents is the earthquake that happened in, um, uh, I believe it's uh, Colossae and Laodicea, and uh, Hierapolis, I think, was the other city. Um, yeah, Laodicea was built, was rebuilt because they were so wealthy, you know. Uh, so, again, here is this documentation coming out of the um, uh, out of the first century, both documented within the scriptures and documented in historical sources um, through very eminent, reputable scholarship that state that these things occurred within that time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I have all that in front of me, too. Oh, um, <laughs> oh no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you, you caught it. Uh, in AD 40 and AD 60, there were pestilences in Babylon and Rome where Jews and Gentiles suffered together. There were earthquakes uh, recorded for us in Acts 16, verses 26. And just previous to AD 70, there were earthquakes, as William mentioned, in Crete, uh, Smyrna, Miletus, uh, Samos, Laodicea, uh, Colossae, Rome, Judea, etc. So you have all all of these things were being fulfilled within Jesus' disgeneration, just like he said. He said all these things. He didn't say some of these things. Um, the next sign are Jesus mentions tribulation, prisons. Uh, they would beat them. They would kill some of them. They would be brought before kings and rulers for his namesake. And of course, William, we covered this when we covered. Uh, let's see, the first of the big yeah. three, right? Uh, verses uh, Matthew ten, verses seventeen and following. Um, so let me just, uh, we won't spend a lot of time here, but let me just reemphasize these passages. If you want to look at the fulfillment of all of these things Jesus, is talk, Jesus talks about here, uh, most of them are fulfilled in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 3, verse 17. Acts 5, verse 40. Acts 7, verses 54 through 60. Acts 8, verse 1. Acts 9, verse 1. Acts 12, 1 through 3. Acts 14, verse 19. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Acts 26, verse 23, Acts 28, verse 12, and Acts 25. Uh, and William, the next sign would be that the love of many will grow cold, Jesus talks about, that they would betray and hate one another. And I think you brought up uh, passages in Timothy, which would be 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, 2 Timothy 4:10. And verse 16, there would be false prophets, which we've already discussed. Um, and William brought up passages in Timothy as well. And also 1 John. You know, First uh, John says that he, he knew that it was the last hour. Why? Because there were these antichrists, these, these false teachers. Um, but now we get into, William, uh, what I would call two specific signs. Now, some of these signs were... Uh, as Jesus said, that but the end was not yet, right? That these these were kind of general signs that were leading up to the end of the age, but not necessarily, you know, pointing to the direct imminence of it. And yet, we have two signs now that really 
Jesus does identify as once you see these two signs, you can really know that the end is near. And the first of these are in verse, of course, 14, uh, where Jesus, let's see, let's flip the page here. He says, in this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, the end of what? The end of the age. Now, I don't understand, William, why gentry would be um, flip-flopping back and forth on what the end of the age is early on in Matthew 24 with the disciples' question when Jesus goes on and he talks about the end. Well, <laughs> What would the end be other than the end of the age? So Jesus is telling us that when the Great Commission is fulfilled, that is when the end of the age that the disciples asked about would be fulfilled. And of course, Gentry would take this passage as fulfilled by AD 70. And you know, I think, William, and probably your experience as well, when you're going over these signs and you're showing the first century fulfillment of it, you can kind of see the futurists just kind of light up when we get to the Great Commission, because then it's just like, ah, I got you. There's no way you can prove that the gospel was, cre was preached globally by 8070. It's impossible. And boy, they really think that they have you. And so I'm going to give you the honor of uh, how are we to understand uh, the word world and all nations here? Well, you know, that's a very good point, and, you know, it is a text that comes up you know quite a bit but uh as you delve into the text and take a look at it uh you can see very clearly what Jesus meant in the context i'd like to maybe begin by citing a text from Luke chapter 2 uh to give you know an idea of what they meant by world in their day and time and when they uh, especially when this text was written in Luke chapter 2 he says and it came to pass this is verse 1 um it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. Now, um, here was a case where, the, where all the world, uh, which is simply meant in that context, those who were under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. And um, so he says all the world would be taxed. Now, that's one um, use of this term, inhabited earth. In Matthew 24 and verse 15, he now, says... Now, wait, 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 wait. Now, that is the same Greek word, oikimene, correct? Yes. Okay, that's important yes. to point out. Go ahead. Yes, that is the same term, oikimene. Now, it, the terms that are used to express the preaching of the gospel actually use several different Greek terms. But what is so interesting, and this is something that Dunn Preston pointed out in his book some years ago, I believe it's his book... Um, the end of um, uh, the end of in, the world, or in, into the into, into all the earth, into or, all the world. Yeah, there you go. But at any rate, he he pointed out, uh, and uh, which is you know another just significant point here that every statement that is used in the gospel to talk about preaching the gospel, the New Testament shows that it was confirmed. So let's just kind of walk through those. If we well, we may not have time to to cover them all, so let's do it very quickly. And we can pick up on this maybe in another broadcast because our time is getting away here. But um, he says this gospel must be preached as a witness to all the nations uh, in all the inhabitable earth, and then shall the end come. Well, you have, uh, number one, it was to be done before that generation passed. 
Number two, you have Romans 10 and verse 18, which talks about the gospel having gone to throughout the all the world. The world. And uh, it uses the term inhabitable earth, but it also uses the term cosmos there, which is the term that's used in Mark 16, 15 and 16. And then you have the gospel going to all the creation, uh, Mark 16, uh, 16, as well as... Um, uh, or 16, 15 and 16, as well as Colossians 1, 23. So I'm going to stop there. We can pick up on this and maybe put all those terms together, but it shows that it was done in the first century. The apostles completed the mission that Jesus gave them. That is absolutely correct, and um, we will spend just a little bit more time developing that chart that Don developed, and I have I just added one more passage to his chart in our book, House Divided in uh, Revelation. Um, but we'll, we'll cover that in our next show, and we will continue our trek through the Olivet Discourse. And remember, guys, the Olivet Discourse, whatever your understanding of the Olivet Discourse is, will dictate and determine what the rest of eschatology is teaching in the New Testament. And you know, we couldn't agree more. And the Olivet Discourse, folks, is not difficult. Every prophecy expert, to some degree, uh, will tell you that, boy, it, it's kind of difficult. Uh, but then they'll jump into the newspapers. But, folks, it's not difficult. Yeah, Bible prophecy is not difficult. The book of Revelation is not difficult. And we're just trying to bring some common sense and some peace of mind to you and show you how uh, your, salva your salvation is complete in Christ. And he's taken away your sin. And this is a, a wonderful uh, fulfillment message and, you know, we will get into that and we'll speak peace to your heart. Well, thank you for tuning in to The Living Body. Thanks again for William, uh, you know, helping us and, and, and helping me go through this series on The Big Three. And we will see you next week. Lord bless. All right. Goodbye. For the past hour, you've been listening to The Living Body Broadcast with Michael Sullivan, David Green, and Michael Bennett. I'm William Bell with Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust.